my name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro-avatar, pro-journalistical podcast where we stick to the list for better or worse. Uh, and before we start off today, I do just want to do some housekeeping. Uh, if you've listened to the podcast for any real stretch of time, you'll know that we have been gradually adding to our workload against our better judgments, uh, adding different things like the production history, the clips. I mean, these are things that we didn't start out with. Uh, and in fact, from the very beginning of the podcast, we've had a, a history of that because we've obviously we had the news section that we dropped pretty damn quickly. Um, but really, we've just come to a point in uh, in our own lives where it just we can't maintain that level of perfection. Exactly. That's yes. called <laughs> what it was. Like, we were trying to attain a godlike form of perfection and that's and, that's just not tenable anymore no. um and we should understand that perfection is only something accomplishable by john lithgow exactly absolutely and really to to try and achieve that ourselves would really be to insult uh our patron saint so uh we are Sacrilege. basically have have found ourselves at a point where we we can't continue doing the level of post-production we are doing, you know, rest assured, listeners, we are not dropping the episodes or stopping the podcast or anything like that. However, as you listen going forward, the editing is going to be more slippery. We aren't going to be going in and editing out ums and ahs and tangents and things. We are going to try and get better at keeping that stuff out of the original recording, uh, but it's going to have to slow down because I know that John and Harley are preparing to take up some work that's going to take a lot more of their time out. I've been doing that for a little while now and I've been, you know, out of the house at six in the morning, back at six at night, and I've been editing the podcast on the train and it's not a very pleasant experience. So that is going to have to slip and we'd rather to have that slip than to drop the amount of episodes, drop the uh, time we get to spend together talking about movies uh, and as part of that, we're also going to be losing the production histories. We're also going to be losing the clips that we put in, absent the trailer, and of course the uh, the anti, the pro anti apathetic sound clips, and of course the Lithgow intro at the at the end. Um, we don't want to lose that. Uh, but and as things get closer to the modern day, those are going to become sort of less and less important. The production histories, uh, definitely, yeah. Yeah, the production history is definitely, and also the clips, because there's going to be less situations where we have to have them as a Reference explanation talk. or an example of a thing, because a lot of the movies that we're going to talk about You'll know. have been seen. You, peop you guys know them, unless there's something very obscure. See, no, now we're backing ourselves into corners, John. We're, we're not doing it. Oh. <laughs> This is the thing that... No, no, I, I'm saying, unless it's a thing that's very obscure, you've seen yeah, it. Yeah, so, uh, so that's really the, the plan going forward. And, you know, we, we have a, a, a loyal base of listenership that do listen every week, uh, but it isn't really that big. Uh, maybe in the future, if it does become bigger, we'll be able to hire someone to do this or find ourselves in a position where we can take it up ourselves again. But for the meantime, that's just not possible. Uh, so really what I'm saying is it's your fault. If uh, if we were bigger than we are, then you wouldn't be hearing me say any of this. So really it's on you. 
Um, I we we do ask you to uh, leave a review every week, and none of you ever do it. So this is where we find ourselves. Jeez, a little harsh. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, please forgive us any lack of professionalism in the audio quality where we were previously pretty decent at. Uh, but this is this is where we find ourselves, and we would rather. And to be fair, we've been very professional over at least a year and a half. Yeah, at least the last year and a half, we've got a pretty good rhythm, and, and but we just can't continue it. Yeah. So just letting you know that from this episode forward, uh, that is going to be the new state of play, and um, I'm sure. But it shouldn't sound ominous. It's just a little bit more loosey goosey, baby. It's a little bit more freeform jazz. Yep. I wouldn't and... say freeform jazz, but less precision editing, which is yes. really what takes up the time. It's the freeform jazz that Elrond Hubbard liked to do, where whenever oh, someone would play a wrong note, he would, you know, take money from them. And this is the sort of thing that we're all going to have to get a little bit better about, you know, that John's um, famous Elrond Hubbard tangents might have to go by the wayside. Uh, we might have to get a little bit better about avoiding those during the recording than after them. Um, but yes, Harley, what have we watched this week? So this week we have watched something I've been sort of excited to get to. I'm a big fan of the character and a big fan of this movie. We have, of course, watched Sherlock Holmes, which is the Guy Ritchie adaptation of the long-standing fictional detective character uh, originally penned by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. But before we get into that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, we went to the cinemas to see something that was actually really awesome. We did indeed. Uh, we all went to see Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, uh, which is an animated children's fantasy movie directed by Joel Crawford and Januel Mercado. Uh, and it follows Puss in Boots, played again by Antonio Banderas, reprising his role from Shrek. He's on his last of his nine lives, honestly, because he's a cat, you know, um, and he's terrified by that. And on top of that, he's being pursued by a mysterious bounty hunter who is an intent and seizing this last life from him. And as he is fleeing, he is reunited with his old flame, Kitty Softpaws, played by Salma Hayek, uh, who is in, is also in search of what he's in search for, which is the legendary wishing star, which will grant anyone who finds it a wish. And he's, of course, going to ask for his nine lives back. But there are other competitors as well. And so they find themselves in a bit of a race against time. So, uh, before I do my thing, why don't you guys each say what you thought about it? Uh, Harley, what did you think? I had a really, I had a really great, I had a really great time with it. I love the animation style that they've done here. It's like the semi Spider-Verse thing, where in certain action scenes you get to drop frames and whatnot, but it's a little more painterly, less comic pop this time around. Uh, there's a huge focus on the idea of the fairy tale. Notice, you know, it doesn't avert the tropes like you'd see in Shrek, but it does still break them down and look at them with a sense of sincerity. Uh, I love the bounty hunter, the wolf, and also some of the little side characters. There's a little deranged dog, Perito, uh, played by Harvey Gillian, and he is a character who could have been very annoying, but he turns out to be really endearing. So I really enjoyed this movie. It has such a fantastic energy to it. It, It's funny and it's also very dark and serious it breaks down puss in boots as a character to try and find what kind of person he is and why he fights so hard i have to commend this movie for 
a very accurate portrayal of a panic attack. As someone with anxiety, I really felt seen by that. And that comes with, you know, the character of Perito, his relationship that he builds with Puss in Boots. I also love the other characters here. Jack Horner is a particularly fantastic villain who is just a bad guy. There's, they don't count it in any, oh, he's got trauma. No, he's just bad. We've also got Goldilocks and the Three Bears, who you get a lot of really fun moments from. Uh, they're played by Ray Winstone, Florence Pugh, Olivia Colman, and another actor plays the baby bear <laughs> that I cannot remember the name I of. I thought it was James Corden, but it wasn't. No, no, it is... You can tell that it's not James Corden, because it's a really good voice performance. <laughs> That's what I can say about the this movie as a whole. Everyone is at the top of their game here. Banderas and Hayek absolutely crush it. There's a very fantastic character called the Ethical Bug. Who kind of speaks like this yeah. and tries to teach people how to behave and and be their conscience? But we can't call him Jiminy Cricket. We can't, because technically that's Disney, but he's the Ethical Bug. Uh, uh, and I have to praise that as a fantastic comedy uh, character. Baby Bear is played by Samson K.O. People would recognize him from Our Flag Means Death. Oh, shit, yeah. Yeah, he plays the character Oluwande from Our Flag Means Death. And he's really great in that, and it's a fun performance yeah. here. John Mulaney is Jack Horner. Yeah. The resurrected ghost of Jimmy Stewart <laughs> is the ethical bug. Ah. <laughs> uh- I thought this was very fun. I was not sure that we really needed another Puss in Boots movie. What now? Twelve years after the first. But uh, if we were going to get one, it's. I mean, this is a good one. I will say that I'm not as hot on it as you guys are. I was a little surprised at how quickly I just stopped thinking about it after I saw it. But it weaves in a lot of stuff from the first one. A surprising amount. Kitty Softpaws is from the first movie. Uh, they. They try and connect that back a lot. And they try and connect in Shrek as well. And they do seem to be teasing perhaps a Shrek 5. Uh, But it's a decent plot. It's sort of a classic quest structure. Um, And that's fun. I mean, they make some good decisions with that. It goes for some dark stuff too. I really like the bounty hunter that is pursuing Puss in Boots. He has a very striking design. He's this white wolf with this black cloak. Uh, and red eyes red eyes and yeah you could definitely see a a version of well you can definitely see how some kids would find it pretty you know aggressive and kind Mm. of scary i mean it's a little bit like um like the wolf in the never-ending story or something like that like he whenever he shows up he does this like chilling whistle Mm. yeah and it's uh, that will scare kids like straight up it's a very classic like kids movie scary thing like the things you remember from your childhood scary thing from a kids movie and it's it sort of taps into that sort of thing of fairy tales as being a little bit spooky and that's good and they do tap into some more classic fairy tale stuff as well there's some good laughs that come out of that like you mentioned the Jiminy Cricket thing uh but I think the use of Jack Horner is pretty good I love Perito the dog I think he's Mm. hilarious (laughs) <laughs> Although nothing in, in it made me laugh as much as when I came out of the theatre saying, you know, it reminded me of someone I know, meaning my own dog. And for Jean to turn around and say, what, do you mean me? No, Jean, I don't. I mean my actual <laughs> pet, my animal, not you. 
<laughs> your, your own neurotic dog. Um, but yeah, ridiculously stacked voice cast. I mean, like, Olivia Coleman is an Oscar winner, and she's just <laughs> sort of playing Mama Bear in a Shrek movie, or a Shrek spin-off movie. Um, that's, yeah, I, I, I didn't know it was her until the end. I didn't know it was Florence Pugh until the end. Ray Winstone, though, yeah. you know, I could pick him a mile away, but... Uh, yeah, it's a good cast and a very pretty art style. I think I would have liked it to commit a little bit more. I, I do think it is sort of like not quite going as hard towards the painterly style, almost like it's a little bit afraid to totally leave the Shrek style behind. But uh, I think it does look pretty gorgeous. I next saw a movie that I was interested in going in. I mean, this is another movie I saw in cinemas. I was interested going into it but I was not expecting to just outright love it as much as I do. And it is a movie, unlike Puss in Boots, that has sat with me and has been like something that I just can't get out of my head because of how much I, I really adore it. It is Babylon. It is a historical dramedy directed by Damien Chazelle, and it's set in Hollywood over a period of about ooh, six, six years or so that it really spends a lot of time in, um, from the late 1920s to the early 1930s. And it follows three characters during the upheaval in the transition from silent movies to sound. Uh, they are veteran movie star Jack Conrad, played by Brad Pitt, headstrong young starlet Nellie Leroy, played by Margot Robbie, and an ambitious producer's assistant named Manny Torres, played by Diego Calva. So if you've heard very much about this movie yourself at this point, you've probably heard that it's a gigantic bomb. It cost like $80 million to make, and it's made $15 million worldwide after having been out for several weeks overseas already. Like, it has not done well, and it has been divisive critically as well. And I would say that that is because this is a very specific movie that is made for a very particular audience. But I happen to find myself a member of that audience, and I loved it. It just worked on me, and it is the kind of movie, more than any other movie I've seen since, I don't know, maybe The Empty Man, where I've sort of said people will come around on this like five years from now, ten years from now. People will be talking about this uh, in retrospect with much greater affection than they are talking about it now. This is sort of destined to find that sort of post-release life. Um, it is singing in the rain. I'm not the first person to make this comparison, but it's a very apt comparison. It's singing in the rain meets Boogie Nights and Wolf of Wall Street. Well, there's um, also the artist there, the the transition from a silent film to talkies. Well, that is singing in the rain as well. And it is, I bring up singing in the rain because they actually use singing in the rain as sort of like a plot parallel. Like mm. it's explicitly mm. within the text of the movie. Um, but it makes choices. Like this is a bold film. It makes decisions and it makes decisions that it knows some people in its audience are not going to like. It makes a lot of really wild choices and it just keeps pushing and pushing and pushing. Uh, and it is rude and it's crude. And there's a lot of nudity and there's a lot of swearing and there's a lot of like kind of twisted stuff. But that is part of what makes it uh, so ambitious and bold in its own right. It's undeniably indulgent, um, perhaps too much so for most audiences. It's three hours and six minutes long. It, pro it probably didn't need to be, um, but I don't care because I loved every second of it. Um, 
it is like a sprawling novel. It's made up of these vignettes, these these character arcs that are told through vignette more than they are told through plot. The rise and fall of these characters, the the sort of journey through Hollywood as it chews people up and spits people out. Um, it could have been a, a series, a limited series, or an ongoing multi-season show, but it had to be a movie. It's too much about the movies for it not to have been a movie. Um, there's a lot of dark humour, which, again, I think is going to be divisive to people. There's a this running, very twisted gag of all of these, basically the lax safety standards of that era of Hollywood and this string of deaths by misadventure that just keep popping up. Um, but the themes here are really bracing and uh, and they they don't shy away from taking on some of this stuff. And, yeah, it's probably exaggerated. You know, it probably is, like, it, it starts off with, like, this orgy that all these people are at and it's this huge thing with an elephant and, um, you know, all this stuff, people overdosing and, and whatnot. Uh, but it... I think to criticise it for not being historically accurate is to sort of miss the point. In fact, the movie almost says it towards the end, that this isn't reality. It's an idea, you know, and that's the thing that gets remembered. It's the idea. It's what it represents. And and that's sort of the themes that it's dealing with, decadence, depravity. As I said, people being chewed up and spat out by the Hollywood system. Movies as a concept at the end too. Why, despite all of that, do people still want to be part of that industry? Do people still want to make movies? The importance of those stories mm. um, just as as a point of human experience. Uh, and the performances are all fantastic. Robbie just steals the show. She is giving the best performance I've ever seen her give. Um, she is just magnetic. I will say that I don't think Pitt is clicking. I think he feels a little too contemporary um, for the type of character that he's playing. I don't think he's quite locked into the vibe of 1920s Silent Star. Well, he he worked quite well in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but that mm. was like 70s, and yeah. he fits well into that 70s mould. Uh, like you said, I don't know how well he would fit into 1920s, 1930s, 1910s. I would say watching that part, you want someone more of a George Clooney type. Yeah, someone with a... Someone more classic Hollywood? Mm. Um, but you've got a stack supporting cast as well. Gene Smart and Olivia Hamilton are absolutely fantastic. You've got Tobey Maguire as this sort of, like, gangster, but, like, really pale with red puffy eyes and, like... He looks like a ghoul. He looks like a ghoul, yeah. Or like a, mu- a munchkin on meth. Um, but the Someone Justin Hurwitz score is... The Justin Hurwitz score is phenomenal. He uses a lot of horns that are usually integrated into the scene. A lot of this music is played within the scenes themselves. It's a brilliant score. It's the best score of the year, as far as I'm concerned, the year 2022. Um, Most people seem to think it's going to win the Oscar and it will absolutely deserve it if it does. Um, And it's brilliantly shot and edited as well. Damien Chazelle has always liked his long takes and he's got a bigger budget than ever before to do his long takes here. Um, And just some of the dancing in the movie. Like, it's not a musical or anything, but, like, people dancing in, you know, these massive party scenes, uh, you know, filming a dance sequence in a movie, it's just so well done. But it 
I really hope it doesn't damage Giselle's career because it's going to lose a ton of money. Like, it's not just like that $80 million budget. Once you wrap in marketing and distribution, apparently, according to some trades that I was reading, uh, they're talking like a $250 million cost and it's made $15 million. Like, it has lost people money. Um, And uh, I really hope that it doesn't hurt Damien Giselle's career because this is... Basically, there's that idea of, and it's it's basically the, the premise of a different podcast, the blank check movie, the movie you get to make because uh, you have so succeeded previously in your career that you have mm. capital to throw around. And this is yeah. Damien Chazelle's blank check movie. This is, uh, and I hope that we get more of him, I, more of those movies from him. I hope that he doesn't end up having to retreat. But... Uh, I'm, I remain hopeful that, like, something like The Big Lebowski or The Thing or a whole bunch of other movies that were ignored at the time of their release but re- retained a cultural impact afterwards, I think that this is a movie whose audience will find it. Mm. I mean, the Tobey Maguire character itself seems rife for memes. Just the look of the guy. Oh, yeah. There's... I, this... If people saw this movie, like, it is a meme-filled movie. It is a bunch of memes just waiting to happen. Um, like, it, and it, look, um, I w- th- this will be a good indicator of uh, of whether you are on board for what this movie is doing. In the first five minutes of this movie, an elephant shits on a guy. Like, <laughs> if you're not, <laughs> if that's like, eh, and admittedly, I am eh, but I suppose, like, if, if that completely turns you off, I don't want to see a movie, that sounds stupid. You know, if that completely locks you out immediately, then you're probably not in the audience. But if, like me, but, you're grossed out, but it, it it's not a deal breaker, then you're probably open to the kind of bonkers, and it is bonkers, stuff that this movie does. But to be fair, we go to the cinema to see things we never be able to see in our modern day. So I'm, I'm never going to be able to see a man get shit on by an elephant, so I'll have to turn to Babylon for that. At home, I saw nine it is a musical directed by Rob Marshall. It's based on the 1982 stage play of the same name, which was itself based on Federico Fellini's semi-autobiographical 1962 film, Eight and a Half. And it retains the 60s setting of the musical, and it follows a film writer and director, Guido Contini, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, who is on a deadline to start filming his newest film. But he's got writer's block. He can't come up with anything. And so... He's trying to deal with that while simultaneously contending with the complicated relationships that he has with the women in his life. Bless you. <clears throat> this is a bit of a disappointment after how much I loved Rob Marshall's last musical that I saw, Chicago. Uh, it is comparatively shallow and unrefined. It's dealing with a lot of this sort of post-World War II Italy stuff, stuff to do with national identity and masculinity in the aftermath of fascism, but the film can't handle it because it's made by a bunch of 21st century Americans. And it's like, they don't know what to do with that hot potato. Uh, it's vignettes, mostly. Each woman gets a little story and a song. And it's a dynamite cast, you know, Marion Cotillard, uh, Penelope Cruz, Nicole Kidman, Judy Dench, Kate Hudson, Sophia Loren. Also Fergie, who only has to sing, but does it very well. Um, Lewis, Cotillard and Hudson are the best for me. Uh, I do, I think they do great stuff in their performances, and they're very very good in the uh, the musical numbers. Well, maybe not Lewis, but he only gets the one. Um, the music is hit or miss for me, though. It's better the more energetic it is. 
Uh, and the musical numbers, the way they are staged, those are excellent, though. Marshall knows what he's doing, and he manages to capture the sort of the theatricality of Chicago in those moments. Um, and two of the best, both the music and the cinematography, two of the best m- musical numbers for that are newly done for the film. Um, I think there were three new things written for the movie, and two of them are the best parts of it. Uh, it's like they're on sure ground, the more control they're exerting, the more authorship they have without them having to sort of go into stuff like like all of those themes about post-war Italy that they clearly don't feel comfortable dealing with. But it's beautifully shot. Uh, great cinematography of Italian seaside, moody studio lighting. I mean, it's a well-made movie. It's just disappointing. I next saw Hamlet. It is a BBC TV movie directed by Gregory Doran. It's based on the William Shakespeare play of the same name. And it's a filmed version of the 2008 Royal Shakespeare Company production. I say filmed version, but it's filmed as a movie, um, just with the same cast and uh, creative decisions. Uh, It follows Hamlet, here played by David Tennant. He's the Prince of Denmark. uh, And the ghost of his recently deceased father tells him about his murder at the hands of his brother, who is the new king, Claudius, played by Patrick Stewart. And uh, mm-hmm. he has in he has taken the throne and married Hamlet's mother, Gertrude, played by Penny Downey, and Hamlet goes nuts and wants revenge. This is an energetic ad- adaptation. I've already talked about one of these BBC movies that sort of took an RSC stage production and, and transferred it to a BBC TV movie, which was King Lear. But whereas I had a problem with that where it was sort of like it hadn't, the, the necessary adjustments hadn't been made to adjust for the fact that they were no longer on stage playing to a live audience. They were playing to a camera. Um, that, that's that been bypassed here. They have much more depth in the staging of the play. The actors are a lot more varied. They're willing to go quiet. David Tennant does the to be or not, or not to be sequence in a very subdued way, in, in extreme close-up, in a way that obviously would not be what he was doing on the stage. Um, like, they've taken advantage of the fact that they are in a different medium. Uh, and it's better directed, too. I will say that the sound is a bit off. I mean, it's live audio that's been captured on the set through mics, and you do hear the the problems that come with that sometimes. Um, they have not gone back to ADR or anything. It's abridged, but not as abridged as some other versions. The, obviously, the original play... Runs about four hours. This runs three. And I do think it loses too much in the last third. It fractures the finale a bit because all of the machinations that lead up to the infamous final sequence are abbreviated and accelerated. And it can kind of feel manic and out of nowhere. Um, it's got a modern-ish style uh, with security cameras and things. This sort of high-tech palace. Uh, people wearing sort of modern clothes uh and it gives it some personality and the rendition is sort of in keeping with that it is more playful and spirited it's got more of a modern sensibility about it tenant though is absolutely fantastic he is this ball of angry electricity he's actually the first hamlet i've really liked i like hamlet the play a lot but i can't say i've ever seen a production i've seen a few of them now where i really liked what the actor playing hamlet was doing uh, but, a lot of the time, people can go too much. Yeah, or, or just not blend the two together properly, mm. not blend Act 1 Hamlet with Act 3 properly. Yeah. And uh, I've always found Claudius more interesting as a result, but 
here they do this interesting thing, and I don't know whether it is in because of the abbreviations they've done or not, but um, I think, unless I missed it, they have cut the, uh, the line where Hamlet says he is going to to put on a show, basically, that all of all of what he's doing is an act. They cut mm. that. So mm. now it seems to play, or at least it did for me, like the ghost is sort of this sort of cosmic, sort of eldritch kind of trigger mm. that he's completely lost his mind. He's, he's can't deal with it anymore. And it ties into something that I think that this particular filmed version of the play does very well, which is the implication that whether it was intentional, whether it's just something I'm picking up on, I think is just as valid either way, that maybe the ghost isn't a ghost, that maybe mm. it isn't Hamlet's dad, that maybe it is, as is said in the original text, you know, this just could be a dark spirit playing tricks. Yeah. Um, That's an interesting way to look at the Hamlet story, mm. and stories about revenge on the whole. That's mm. kind of compelling to me. Uh, an outstanding cast. Stuart is a softer... Claudius than a lot of them instead of like freaking out during the play he just sort of very composedly stands up walks over to Hamlet looks him dead in the eye and shakes his head like you've you've fucked up now mate like I know um it's uh, Downey gives great shades to Gertrude more than I've seen a lot of other Gertrudes give uh Mariah Marie yeah Mariah Gale as Ophelia is very strong and Oliver Ford Davies, C.O. Bibble himself, the Star Wars movies, uh, Padme Amidala's advisor in the first movie. Um, he's, he plays Polonius, and he mm. is a scene stealer. He's absolutely fantastic as this doddering old man who is not a fool, but his mind's going, you know. that That's the way Ford Davies sort of plays him here is sort of as a guy in the early stages of dementia or Alzheimer's. Mm. Um if it weren't for the ending issues, this would absolutely be the version to watch, I would say, if you're looking for a recorded Hamlet. Uh, I, I wish that there were an unabridged cut of it, basically. Mm. Um, I will say that, uh, final thing, a truly magnificent piece of trivia, the skull that is used for um, To Be or Not To Be, the uh, Yorick skull, yep. is a real guy's skull. Um, it, uh-huh. it is the skull of Polish Cambo of Polish composer Andrzej Tchaikovsky, uh, who died in the 80s and donated it to the RSC in his will. He wanted his skull to be used for productions of Hamlet as as Yorick after his death. And uh, he died in the 80s, but the thing of it is, is it creeped everyone out. And so none of the actors wanted to use it. And so it's this guy's skull sat in a tissue-lined box in the RSC's storage room for 25 years until finally David Tennant came along and he was the first guy with the guts enough to actually take a real human skull out on stage and then again in this movie. I kind of like that. Great. I like that a lot. That's. I mean, the guy was like, hey, I want to be part of these versions of Hamlet. I want to be on the stage. I want this to be in my credits. Yeah, and a lot of like famous actors wouldn't do it. Mark Rylance wouldn't do it. David Tennant would, though. Um, of course David Tennant would. Mark Rylance would have, you know, unsimulated oral sex on camera, but <laughs> <laughs> no, he's not holding a human skull. Um, but, uh, yeah, if I, I, I've i got to say, if I'm this guy, Andre Tchaikovsky, and I've donated the skull for 
use in RSC production. I'm pretty pissed still it's just sitting there for 25 years in a box. Yeah, yeah. You know? Oh, that's an that's an episode of Ghost Whisperer. Yeah. You can tell that the moment David Tennant started that on stage the first opening night, he was like, I can finally rest. Yeah. And I, I've, I've got to say, if I'm the guy playing Hamlet, I mean, a human skull would freak me out, but there'd be a big part of me that's like, well, this is what this guy wanted, and no one's ever done it for him. Wish. Exactly. And we've just had him sitting there, you know, I've got to get over it. I've got to go on stage with the human skull. You've got to respect your co-actors. <laughs> uh, lastly, Because who could I... play Yorick better? <laughs> lastly, this week I saw Daybreakers. It is an action horror movie directed by Michael and Peter Spierig. And it is set in the hellish future of 2019. When <gasps> hold hold on here, like see if you can follow this. A a plague has begun uh, after a disease was transferred from bats to humans. Shit! <laughs> Fuck me! God uh, damn it! It's always Every a goddamn time. bat. Every um, fucking time. But uh, it turned most of the human race into vampires, and only five percent of regular humans are left, and they are now hunted and farmed for blood. Um, well, but now they're I'm just disappointed out. I didn't get to become a vampire. <laughs> but they're running out of uh, of humans, and the vampires who can't feed are devolving into these beastly sort of bat like figures. Basically, if you're a if you're getting blood regularly, then you're Dracula. You you look human, and you're just very suave and strong and all of that. But if you don't get blood regularly, you turn into a Nosferatu. Mm. Um. A reluctant vamp- vampire named, I shit you not, Edward, uh, played by Ethan Hawke, is a scientist who is trying to develop a blood substitute. But he is really not on board with all this wiping out of humanity. He didn't want to be a vampire in the first place. He's trying to Morbius with that synthetic blood. Um, but he is approached by human refugees who think they might have found a cure to vampirism. This is really creative and ambitious. It does a lot with a little maybe too much. You do see its budget because it doesn't have the funds to really sell some of the choices that it's making. But the world building is just fantastic. Like all of these cars that are day-proofed with just like, huh. you know, that uh, completely shaded windows and like cameras on the outside that go to a monitor on the inside of the car. Um, Sounds like they really thought it through. Yeah, enclosed sky bridges connecting one building to another so people hmm. can move about in the day. Uh, people, you know, vampires lining up in the subway on their way to work, getting coffee at the the coffee shop, and it's instead of milk, it's blood. Um, hmm. There's just a lot of detail, and it's at its best when it's really deeply rooted in that. It turns into this much more generic guerrilla resistance story in the second half, which uh, loses some of that charm. And I will say none of the characters get much development. Some of the actors overcome that, um, you've got people like Sam Neill and Willem Dafoe here, uh, and they do good jobs of overcoming that, but uh, some of the actors can't too. You've got great action, though. It's bloody. It makes good use of the vampire concept. There is this car chase where uh, Edward is in a car that's being chased by sort of the vampire police, and they're, like, shooting at the car, and they're shooting holes through the mm. blackout windows. And so there are these, like shafts of light that are suddenly coming in and he's got to like duck and move out of the way in the car that's fun um it's well shot too there's some very striking images i mean this is an australian movie uh, made by australians in australia uh and no matter how much they try and pretend otherwise 
it was shot in Australia. <laughs> like, it is so obviously <laughs> shot in Australia. In Brisbane, actually. Um, and, uh, like, when they're, like, driving through the countryside, they're trying to tell me it's the Midwest in America. I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> like, look at those trees. It's not Midwest America. That's Australia. I've probably driven on those roads. Any um, Midwestern <laughs> American will tell you as much. Hmm. Uh, but you can find it available for streaming in Australia on Stan and on the Stars. Isn't Sam Neill in that? Yeah, yes. Sam Neill. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he mentioned he, it. He, he's sort of like the evil guy running, the evil vampire running the blood bank. Um, but uh, you can find it available for streaming in Australia on Stan and on the Stars channel on Amazon Prime. But that's me done for the week. What about you guys? So we watched a couple of things this week. Uh, the first being the Black Phone, which is the story of a a 13-year-old called Finney. Uh, he is played by Mason Thames when he gets abducted by a child serial killer called The Grabber, played by Ethan Hawke. And he's being a serial watched- killer, a serial killer of children, not a child who is a serial killer. Yes. Yes. There's a comma in there somewhere. <laughs> Get in the car! Get uh, in the car, you fucking bitch! He's kidnapped by The Grabber and locked in The Grabber's basement where he starts hearing the phone ring. This black phone that is perched on the wall of the basement that is unhooked. It is not connected to anything. And he starts hearing the voices of the previous murder victims, all of whom he knew previously. Some were friends, some he just, you know, met once or twice. This is, of course, based on the short story from Joe Hill, Joe Hill being the son of Stephen King. Uh... And I had a really great time with it. John, say your short piece on it first. I really enjoyed this. I mean, apparently Ethan Hawke didn't want to play a lot of villains in his career before this, but figured that this was the point in his career. He was old enough that he can make sort of big swings, and he should have taken swings like this so much earlier, because this is incredible. It's This is a fantastic performance from Ethan Hawke. It makes your skin crawl. And it it makes you smile because it's so just fantastically evil. It's a great performance. Finney and his sister are played expert expertly by the young actors. Uh, Mason Thames as Finney, Madeline McGraw as his sister Gwen. Yeah, particularly Madeline. She absolutely knocks it out of the park. And it's just great performances all around. I also have to give major props to Mark Corvin for the score for this movie. There's one piece of music after Finney's been abducted that is just so evocative. And the moment it played, I turned to my mum and said, that's exactly the sound of a kid being abducted. Of like you seeing it on the news, seeing a poster about it. Like that piece of music captured that feeling perfectly Mm. that feeling of dread excellent also it uses on the run by pink floyd in a particularly fantastic sequence and hey scott i see you i understand you i like it so this is another horror movie from scott derrickson you know scott derrickson he did uh doctor strange but doctor strange is kind of like different to a lot of other derrickson's work Mm. uh i recognize him most from sinister and he brings back the 8 eight millimeter filming practices here, and he uses them to show us the scenes of the children being abducted. There's also this amazing title sequence at the start of the film that nails that 
tone that Davidson loves to go for. I do have to say, like, the cast is incredibly strong throughout this entire piece. Uh, I give credit to Jeremy Davies, who plays uh, Finney and Gwen's father, and the fact that the actors can trust each other enough to have some, like, really distressing scenes of uh, physical abuse, uh, that's just outstanding work. But the real two show stealers here are Mason Thames and Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke is the grabber is perfection. I've listened to the original short story. Uh, that's very condensed and very specifically just set in the basement between the grabber and Finney. It keeps itself nice and neat and short. And what Dixon has been able to do here is expand not only the character of Finney, the character of Finney's brother, sister Gwen, but also give the grabber a much more visual element. Like he was just a clown kind of like your John Wayne Gacy type in the story. This time, he's a magician. He's got this two-piece mask that Hawk uses to really emote a lot of the time. And it's a brilliant decision from Derrickson. Derrickson also brings in a lot of uh, his fears as a child, his experiences as a child, into this movie. It feels very 70s in that regard. He has a very mm. keen eye when it comes to that. I love how they translate some of the lines here. Like some of the like some of the dialogue is verbatim from the story, especially the line, and it's chilling when Hawk does it. You won't have to do anything you won't like, and that's just like the gap there before he says like is such a pregnant pause that it freaked me the hell out when he did it. Mm. I love the score. I love all the performances here. I love its vibe. Lawson, have you you've seen this one, right? Yes, I did. I, if you give me a second here, I can tell you where to... I, I did like it. I don't think I liked it as much as it sounds like you guys did. Um, if you want to hear my thoughts on it, I talked about it in episode 146, The Happening yeah. episode. I quite liked this. I think it's incredibly strong. And those King Boys, they know how to get you with... A story f told from a child's perspective. And that attention to detail, that fear that they can draw out is brilliant. Joe Hill is a lot better with his endings than his well, father is. give him time. Like, at this point in his career, Stephen King was still okay with his endings. <laughs> yeah. But, like, generally speaking, both Kings, both King and Joe Hill, are very good with their short story endings. I love those mm. short story work, perhaps more than their long firm long-form stuff. I just think when they get a very compelling idea in their head, like the black phone, they they put it down, they write a tight, like, couple of... Uh, sorry. Uh, they write really tight stories, and it's great. I love short-form horror in that note. Do you know that there is, uh, there is another Stephen King child who is also an author? Yes. Less yes. prominent. Owen. The Liam to... Uh... <laughs> To Joe Hill's Chris Hemsworth. Oh, and then yeah. there is there is the Luke too, which is like the real dark horse of the King family. The daughter, Naomi, who was a Unitarian Universalist church minister in Florida. Huh. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> but But I do have to give major props to Ethan Hawke. Because oh, yeah. the scene Hawk? where his mask gets ripped off his face, he screams like it's his face being ripped like, off. Like Hawke dedicates himself completely. <laughs> Yeah, and I—he's part of. If it if it wasn't him, 
if it wasn't an actor who could dedicate himself to the role as much as he does, it just wouldn't work. It would be too much. But he gives it that sick energy that makes it really land. I highly recommend it. We found it on Amazon Prime through the VPN. It'll be available somewhere here, though. We also watched the first episode of a very, very hotly watched film. I mean, TV show. This has been in production for a very long time and has been waited for for ages. We watched the first episode of The Last of Us. Cordyceps has ravaged mankind. A fungal infection which twists the mind of the person that it infects has wiped us out completely. And within the wasteland and the remnants of society, Joel and Ellie find each other, a pair connected through the harshness of the world they live in, who are forced to endure brutal circumstances and ruthless killers on a trek across post-pandemic America. Brilliant. Fantastic. Exactly what the game was, and it manages to just add to it. It's This isn't a remake. This is a remix. Um, so I'll let Holly. we've been going through The Last of Us, the game, uh, sort of perpendicular to the show, and it is honestly astounding how close they get. Pedro Pascal as Joel is outstanding. Like, after The Mandalorian, <laughs> he's becoming the internet's daddy, uh, yeah. and he really nails the sincerity inherent to the role of Joel, but also the apprehension. This is a guy who doesn't want to put his neck out there for really anyone except for the people he's very close to. But when you are close to him, he will do whatever it takes to protect you. Uh, But you've also got Bella Ramsey as Ellie, and obviously these actors are picking up the characters from their performers from the video games, uh, Troy Baker and Ashley Ashley Johnson, respectively for Joel and Ellie. And they find, they are very similar, of course, but they find new things. And that's yeah. one of the most interesting elements about this adaptation in particular. The story is the same. The story will be the same, because that's just how the story must go, because of who the characters are. But that's the great thing that this adaptation is doing that apparently no other video game adaptation has ever thought to do before, which is actually just adapt the story. Like, exactly. my God. How did it take this long for for an adaptation to think, oh, maybe we should just adapt the story that people, like, fans of the game already really like? Like, even the ones that came close, like the 2018, even the better, so I should say, even the better considered uh, video game adaptations, stuff like, say, Tomb Raider 2018 or something like that, they go all over the place with the story. Or the Resident Evils, like, those aren't better, but they were successful, you know, for whatever reason, like, it's just been this thing for so, so long where adaptations of video games are just like, oh, we'll take the concept and we'll do an entirely different thing. And it never works out. And all of a sudden, the, you know, they actually tried it. Maybe maybe if we're actually faithful, it'll work. And 99% Ron Tomatoes rating, you know, second biggest debut of a series on HBO in 13 years. I mean, okay, yeah. can, we, can we get more of this, please? And... Yeah. I have to give a lot of credit to Craig Mazin and Neil Druckmann on that. They, Craig Mazin, we know from Chernobyl and a couple of other series he's done. And Neil Druckmann, who was involved, he was like the director of the Last of Us games. 
He was the co-director yeah. of the first game, only director of the second. Yeah. Uh, and I think he was the, the the writer of both. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a guy these are two guys who know the world that they've created inside and out. And I would I'm eagerly awaiting more, but this is an incredibly strong start. And mm-hmm. knowing things that happen later on, I'm excited to see them. Also dreading it too. Because there's some really rough shit that happens in The Last of Us. It's a post-apocalypse. The cordyceps basically create zombies. Mm. And I can't wait to hear some of the sound design they have for the clickers. Because it's very specific, the terror of the clicker. Yeah, they're like monster zombies, though. They're not like human beings, not living dead zombies. They've, like, been turned into monsters by by this infection. Like, the... The runners are much more your classic fast zombie thing. Yeah. And and that plays incredibly well with this the opening to the episode. But like the fungal boys, like the really like messed up mushroomy clickers and stuff, they bring a whole different dimension to the zombie apocalypse idea. But it's not really the zombies that are the most dangerous. It's the people. And ultimately this is a story about love. And how love conquers all. I leave that up to you, dear audience, whether or not that is always a good thing. Uh, John? I just want to give some praise to this one stunt performer in the first episode, (laughs) who absolutely throws his body across a diner. Spot on. Perfect. That's how a zombie should move, if they're a runner. I do want to correct myself as well. Neil Druckmann is not the sole director on Last of Us 2. He was the lead director, but uh, there were co-directors. And there was a co-writer on 2 as well. I have to give major praise to the creatives behind this. They have captured the essence of the game so perfectly, and they've hinted towards what will come brilliantly. The theme of this show is, as Harley said, love and the effect that it can have on a person. It, that it acts so similar to Cordyceps, that it, it makes in. you do things. And, like, there's a lot of, like, context with, like, the pre-apocalypse stuff, but to tell you that would have spoilers, and you need to experience yeah, it yourself. <laughs> they have done such a great job at, at points, mimicking the games, but at other at other points, letting it be... An adaptation. A filmed yeah, it's like, piece it's of media, fully having it be an adaptation. It is fully comfortable deviating, but it doesn't deviate too far. Yeah, major props to Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey. They were only going to get better over the show, course of the show as they get more to do, as they get more into the weeds, literally. Like One of the things I really hope they do maintain is some of the long stretches where they're just walking to different places and having conversations because that is one of the most i think compelling elements of the game as i'm playing through it it's having them getting to know each other on a more casual level not always in this heightened always like trying to fight to survive part you know what i mean i also want to give some more props to gabriel luna who plays tommy anatov who plays tess and a returning performer from the game Mel Dangerich as Marlene. Yeah. We're only going to get more of them as the series continues. Yeah, I I know that we're going to get Nick Offerman as Bill, and I am waiting on bated breath for his scenes, because I feel like that is just perfect casting. Lawson? The look of this show is fantastic. 
they've changed certain things about the infected, but it is to the benefit of the show. But we won't go terribly I, I into do that. Have to say, one of the just one of the best pieces of imagery from the game is there's these two like tall skyscrapers, and one of them has collapsed and is leaning on the other. Yeah, and they recreate that in the show, and is like <clears throat> perfect, beautiful. It is a it is exactly what a Craig Mason Last of Us would be. See, I love everything like, that that entails. Craig Mason is also the great, um, a great sort of success story of like branching out and developing as a as a creative. Because we talk about, oh yes, Craig Mason, his his style. You know, we all know him, the creator of Chernobyl. He was the co writer on the Hangover sequels, on Scary Movie three and four, on Superhero Movie, on that Melissa McCarthy movie, Identity Thief. On the Huntsman Winter's War, not even the first Huntsman, the second Huntsman. <laughs> but he The one that no one knows. Yes. Yeah, he like he rocks up and he just does Chernobyl out of nowhere. He directed superhero movies. Like, yeah. He pulls Chernobyl out of his ass and exactly. he's like redefined his entire career. Yeah. Like he's gone <laughs> like all it all it's been is like Scary movie, the Hangover sequels, the Huntsman <laughs> two, and then all of a sudden Chernobyl and The Last of Us. Like it's kind of insane. Like literally, go and look at his filmography. There is nothing at all to indicate that this was in him until just he turns out Chernobyl all of a sudden. It's not even yeah. the Jordan Peele thing where it's like you could kind of see it. Well, yeah, Jordan Peele was doing good work up until yeah. he he did that. He was just doing it in the comedy space. Craig Mazin, I mean, very clearly very talented guy, but like. No one's happy to have the scary movie sequels on their resume. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I am so glad that he's involved in this, because he actually really does care. And I think the best two TV adaptations we've had of a property so far have been, obviously, Last of Us and Sandman. And they've had the original creators involved with production. And mm. I think that that's the best way to do it. You have one of the original creatives... And someone well versed in the television space. Like, for Sam and Neil Gaiman's not a stranger to it, and I'm sure Neil Druckmann himself is not a complete stranger to it, but you need someone well versed in it to sort of temper all of the urges to adapt. But you but need you, the original creative to keep it online, I think. But you also have the television professionals, the industry professionals, who respect the source material. Yeah. And not like yeah. Paul W.S. Anderson, who's like, I'm going to take this and do something completely different. Yeah. And like, I am so excited for the rest of the series. It's been rattling yeah. around in my head ever since the episode ended. Yeah, it's it's been affecting my thought patterns, much like <laughs> Cordyceps itself. It's honestly incredible. It And just as I've been watching Harley play through the game... I'm seeing these moments, and I am just waiting with bated breath. Like I'm a good for these moments I'm a good to be bit done now, and yeah. I am legitimately dreading certain certain scenes. <laughs> yeah, because I've I know I knew the story already, and I know that the series is adapting the first game completely. Yeah. Yes, this uh, first season is the first game. There are rumblings, I think, that the second game would be adapted over seasons two and three because it's a longer game. It would need mm. to be, I think. And, um, and definitely, concern- like, yeah, knowing, I agree with you, Harley, like, knowing where this first game goes, knowing some of the places the second game goes, I think that, that like, 
there will be some really big, bold, surprising moments for just TV oh, yeah. viewers. Like, I think that this is perfect for people who haven't played the games because this yeah. is a story you should experience. Like, for those who are unable to play the games or unwilling to, this is for you. It's like what Sandman was for people who aren't willing to listen to the audiobook or read the comics. This is for you. But it still has enough there for the fans. Yeah. And I am dreading season two because of this. Uh, but I'm also dreading further this season because of this. And that's what I should feel. Like, The Last of Us game can be actively scary. The Last of Us series, you just feel like shit. You feel the dread. <laughs> um... <laughs> I, I think it's worth noting, too, that I believe that they've said they have no interest in a, in doing anything that isn't adaptations of the games. No interest mm. in, like, filler or doing, you know, extra seasons or something. That they are just looking to adapt the games and leave it at that. And I think, actually, if you look at the... I think, prob I think most people think that the thing that Naughty Dog is developing at the moment is probably The Last of Us 3. But I think that if you look at the... Um, I mean, this is going to be one of those shows that is not going to be annual. I mean, they, it takes no. too long mm. to make the stuff. So if you think and, like, okay, plus there's going to have to be some sort of gap between yeah. first season and second season. If you're going to do the time job that's present. Well, Bella Ramsey's already 19. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know, but that still needs to be like a yeah. visible aging process. But like, uh, if they, if they do, um, season two, 2025, season three, 2027, and then the last of us three will hopefully have been out by then and they I'm, I'm assuming that that would be like a trilogy ender it seems like a story that they would want to end rather than continue indefinitely and then yeah. well, then you can adapt that over another two seasons and call it oh like, that's I, a great five season arc like oh i just remembered something from the second game that i am like terrified to see the fucking seraphites <laughs> good god <laughs> That's going to like, be awful. I'm just staking my claim now. Like, we have seen over the last couple of years a big interest in video games, in the mm. TV space especially. Um, we have stuff in development at different places. There is a God of War series that has been greenlit by Amazon. There is Horizon in development at Netflix. Mm. There's a Mass Effect series in development at Amazon. With and a whole Lawson's bunch of... Uh with Lawson's animated alien girlfriend. Yes, Liara is, is the only right call um when dating someone in the mass effect games but like i'm just i'm mean, saying i would expect to see after the huge success of this over the next few months i think you're going to see a lot of those games in development all of a sudden green light green light green light um mm. because it, i think that this thing. has proved that this is a wild fire. that this is a thing. really viable like hollywood's always on the lookout for ip well here's a proof finally that it works and it has to be television, I think, because yeah. the time commitment. Because the time commitment for a game is like a short game nowadays is uh, eight to nine hours long, and these are long form stories that you yourself control the pace of. So pacing is incredibly important. You can't shove it into a film and have it work. It needs to be a television series. So it seems. At least I've never seen it properly accomplished when adapting the story in a film. As much as I like them, it's never really worked properly. So that's what we've seen within the week. Now we will play for you the trailer to Sherlock Holmes. I have a request. Someone I want to see. 
tomorrow the world as you know it will end. Well, there isn't any time to waste then. Is there? It does make a considerable difference to me having someone with me on whom I can thoroughly rely. Oh, it's nice to see Watson. The witness stated that he saw Lord Blackwood rise from the grave. He's going to raise a force that will alter the course of the world. He's just as brilliant as you are, and infinitely more devious. We'll see about that. Nice touch. I was simply studying your methods, should the authorities ask me to hunt you down. Mm. Leave the case alone. Case for you. <laughs> Save your bullets, Watson. <laughs> What was that about saving bullets? First point of attack, right here. Two, throat. Three, crack In summary, neutralized. You've never complained about my methods before? I never complain. When do I complain about you practicing the violin at three in the morning? Your general lack of hygiene or your experiment on my dog? Just kill the dog. Again. <laughs> I wanted to change the world, but I'll settle for ending yours. I wish you would. Get that out of my face. It's not in your face, it's in my hand. Get what's in your hand out of my face. Ugh, they've been flirting like this for hours. Are we in trouble? That was the trailer for Sherlock Holmes. It is an action mystery movie and it is inspired by Arthur Conan Doyle's novels and stories featuring the character of the same name. The film is set in 1890 when the legendary private detective Sherlock Holmes, played by Robert Downey Jr., and his long-suffering friend and partner, Dr. John Watson, played by Jude Law, have apprehended one of their biggest foes yet. That man is Lord Blackwood, played by Mark Strong, an aristocratic occultist who has been murdering young women as part of his rituals. Following Blackwood's execution by hanging, Watson is ready to hang up the deer stalker. He's engaged to a governess, Mary Morstan, played by Kelly Riley, and despite Holmes' best efforts, he's not been able to scare her away. Watson is ready to retire and start a family, a prospect Holmes views with disgust and dismay. But the dream duo are forced into one last investigation when Blackwood's tomb is found broken open from the inside, with no sign of the supposedly dead nobleman to be found. Faced with the prospect of a resurrected serial killer, or perhaps a zombie, Holmes and Watson set out to unravel the mystery. As they do so, however, they stumble across a hidden cabal of cultists, whose members include some of the most powerful men in the country. They've been quietly guiding the British Empire for years, a sort of supernatural deep state, and Blackwood is moving to seize control of them. It's a mystery with more violence and explosions than any Holmes and Watson have ever faced. But there's one last wrinkle, Irene Adler, played by Rachel McAdams. Adler is the only person to ever outsmart Holmes, a femme fatale con woman who finds herself drawn to the detective and he to her. She's resurfaced now with an agenda, but it's not her own. She has an employer, 
a puppet master pulling the strings in a game he intends to force Holmes into, a game of shadows. Say, that's a pretty good name for a sequel. It's a, a bit wordy and melodramatic, but I should write that down. <laughs> so, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on Sherlock Holmes. Why don't you start us off, John? Are you ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. I really like this adaptation of the Sherlock Holmes story. The wit is all there. Robert Downey Jr. is fantastic as the character. But it is a very interesting snapshot of a particular point in the lives of Holmes and Watson. They are sort of moving apart. John's getting married. And this is, in some sense, the final hurrah for these two men. And, yeah. All right, you ready, Harley? It's very good. Yep. Three, two, one, go. I am a big fan of Sherlock Holmes. I love the books. I love pretty much every adaptation I've seen, barring one. Uh, but this is one that I really enjoy. Uh, it's the Will Ferrell ah. Sherlock Holmes one. Uh, but I have a great time with this one. It's an adaptation. It doesn't naturally capture the essence of the original stories, but it's a lot of fun. It's a lot more action-oriented, action and it has a, this frenetic pace that is always entertaining. Uh, I really, really love this movie. I think it's a great, uh, enjoyable time. I think that Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law are fantastic. It isn't the most faithful of Sherlock Holmes adaptations, but I don't think it's as unfaithful as some people make it out to be either. I think that it is building on the bones. It's just rearranging them in a different way. Um, I do love the sort of Victorian aesthetic, and I do think that, I mean, Sherlock Holmes versus potentially supernatural mystery is always going to be a great premise. Oh, yeah. Can you imagine if they actually did it? If Blackwood was this resurrected from the dead, like, zombie guy? Well, they've done that in, um... I mean, they have those pastiches, right? They they call them as, like, people taking on writing Sherlock Holmes books years later. They've done a lot of them. Neil Gaiman did a story that yes, was, what? A Study, yeah, in, a study Emerald. in Emerald. Which it is, is brilliant. Yeah, it's just, like, it is cosmic horror. It's like... Yeah, it's, it's Lovecraft shit. In and, a one of those, story. and one of those uh, adventure games is Sherlock Holmes The Awakened, which is just him straight up fighting Cthulhu. Um, yeah. <laughs> and in fact, that is now being remade for the PS5 and Xbox Series X. Mm. Uh, like, it's, it's always a compelling idea, like because Sherlock Holmes isn't a character who will dismiss magic out of hand. He's a character who will accept magic if all other parts have been exhausted. And that's captured here. Mm. And that goes into Sir Arthur Conan Doyle as a person. He was a person who legitimately believed in magic. You could find him in your garden searching for fairies. He was a weird guy. Yeah. But and yeah. um and uh Blackwood is like explicitly based on people like Alistair Crowley. Yes. Yeah. Um, like real occultists who believed they tapped into dark forces to control the direction of the British Empire. Have you guys heard of, like, just my favourite pitch for a pastiche um, is, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it, but basically it's Sherlock Holmes investigating Jack the Ripper, but then at the end Watson realises that Sherlock Holmes is Jack the Ripper. And he's sort of hey. like, he's had enough of solving crimes, he reckons he can do them pretty pretty good himself. And uh, hmm. basically... And it, but the the cruel cruelest part of it is that it ends with like him 
just the slightest bit of ambiguity of Sherlock Holmes going, oh, you've really fucked up, Watson. This is exactly what Moriarty wants. He's framed me. <laughs> um, <laughs> even though... Even though they so so it's it's kind of that glass drop moment of Kaiser Soze starting to walk straight, mm. but like um of oh fuck, but like like literally Watson coming upon Holmes disemboweling a woman, like <laughs> not much not much room for maneuver. What what turning and being like Moriarty wants you to think I killed her. Yeah. I'm just playing with her organs. <laughs> I'm just investigating. I'm trying to find the name of it because it was. It was very controversial among the the Holmes fanatics. Um, uh, I mean, come on. You can't be too precious about something that's over 152 years old. <laughs> like, it's there's room for adaptation. It has to have room to change. Yeah, those are some of the most fun of the, the pastiches. Um, like, I, like, I don't want to spoil studying... Yeah, I don't want to spoil <laughs> studying Emerald because you've got to at least listen to it. It is genius they do something in there which is a twist to the Format. formula and a twist to the narrative and you'll pick it if you know one of the hilarious it's a story for the fans one of the really hilarious elements is how they keep referring to the queen the queen of england but the queen of england is this eldritch cthulhu like monster from a dimension un- imperceivable to ours and they still refer to her as like your Majesty and Mom. <laughs> it's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, I'll keep having a look here if I can't come up with it. But yeah, those. I, I think that Sherlock Holmes is, is just such a malleable concept. Like, you can take mm. him and apply him to so many different things. Like, Dr. House from House MD is Sherlock Holmes. Like, he's explicitly based on Sherlock Holmes. He has yeah. an addiction. He's barbed and, has, you know, doesn't he has like Dr. People. Wilson on the. Like, helping exactly. him out. Yeah, and um, like, and he fakes his own death at the end of that series. Yeah, um, and like stuff like uh, stuff like sorry, stuff like Dexter trades and that kind of thing as well. Like Monk Castle, the the detective who's set apart from everyone else but struggles socially because of it. It's 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 an archetype. The whole. If you've watched House, if you watched House, it's Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, he just said that. Yeah. Sorry. And it's such a malleable character. And we have multiple, like, straight up, uh, straight adaptations as well. We got the Basil Rathbone stuff. We have the movie Mr. Holmes with sorry, Ian McKellen. And that's a lot of great stuff. But we also have, like, the modern day adaptations. We have Sherlock, which I adore from the BBC. And we also have Elementary, which I do like. Uh, I fell off, but I still do like it um, from. Uh, what channel was it? CBS or something? It was CBS, yeah. Yeah, but that's got Johnny Lee is, Miller. Like, I actually do think Johnny Lee Miller's Sherlock Holmes is a legitimately faithful adaptation of the character himself. Hmm. Um, because, like, they have this brilliant thing in that series where Watson knows that it's not him texting a message because Sherlock doesn't text in full words. Uh, he uses, like, this busted-up phonetic... Uh, abbreviation thing because it's more economical. <laughs> Here I go, I've uh, got it. That novel with where he's Jack the Ripper is called the literally called the Last Sherlock Holmes story, um, <laughs> and uh, it is written by Michael Dibden. I'm quoting here from that. Like this is where I heard about it. it was in that Jack the Ripper book I talked about a little while ago. Mm. They were talking about his appearances in literature. Uh, 
Quote, This book probably contains the most bizarre scene in the Holmes canon, with Dr. Watson spying on Holmes, who hums La Donna Immobile as he skins and hangs pieces of Mary Kelly from the picture rail. Jesus. <laughs> uh, but at any rate... So what about our histories about- with Sherlock Holmes? Yeah. What about... I know you said last week, Harley, that you are a big Sherlock Holmes fan. Yeah. And you've read a lot of the stories. So where do you begin with that? Where I begin is quite young. Um, I've I've always been a big reader, uh, as is probably plainly obvious to see, and I'm always a big fan of murder mysteries, so I would naturally gravitate towards Sherlock Holmes. I have a collection of Sherlock Holmes uh, collections, because uh, oftentimes the original stories were short. They were vignettes that were published in papers like The Strand, and so really the best way to collect them now is in the big volume collections. Uh, they had the release kind of similar to how comic books operate today. Can I just say, um, for any of our listeners, that Audible has an Audible exclusive audiobook of every Holmes story narrated by Stephen Fry. And it like is that, brilliant. Yeah. Um, I do have to say, like, I can cite some of my favorite Sherlock Holmes story. I'm going to be a basic bitch and say Hound of the Baskervilles. <laughs> it's excellent. <laughs> because, like, I don't, know, I don't care how basic that makes me. It's fucking brilliant. Um, it's also really spooky, too. Well, yeah, I also love Red-Headed League. I love Rocking Back Falls, obviously. Uh, and uh, the all of that stuff is just so compelling. The Return of Sherlock Holmes, uh, The Empty Hearse, um, is what that one's called. I think that it's such a brilliant character, such a brilliant story. And he's not... He wasn't... Doyle was not the first to do detective stories, but he really solidified their place in the canon. Every police procedural you have ever watched can draw its roots back to the stories of Conan Doyle and the stories of Edgar Allan Poe, who also did uh, <laughs> uh, si- much sillier uh, stories like Murder in the Room Morgue, where things are just apeshit in that one, part of my pun. Uh, it's not a spoiler, it's over shit. a century old. I know, yeah. <laughs> it's an orangutan with a straight razor. It's brilliant. With, um, then just got co-opted by, I can't even remember the name of it, one of the Italian <laughs> giallos that I watched earlier yeah. on the list just has a has an ape with a straight razor that's, that isn't the killer, but like rocks up to kill the killer at the end of the movie. <laughs> oh, tight. Like, it doesn't get crazier than that shit. Mad Monkey um, coming in clutch. Of course, I was. Ex- I picked up Sherlock when it came out on the BBC. I'm still a huge fan of it today. Uh, last season is a bit uh, with how it decides to end things, but I still really, really like it on the whole. Uh, Batman draws inspiration from Sherlock Holmes. It's well, funny you say that, and I, I do want to return to our histories. But I now that you've said that, I do want to touch on it. This movie takes a lot from Batman. Um, yes, yeah. This is this is the Batman Begins of the Sherlock Holmes verse. <laughs> I mean, it is updating it so much to be making him like a modern gritty action hero. He's kind a superhero. Of thing. He's a superhero. He's got Catwoman in the form of Irene Adler. Like it He's is got Robin. Exactly. It is pretty uh, on. Well, even like even that's that's sort of what are, what do they call them? The Baker Street. Irregulars, um, yeah. the the sort of orphan children, the street urchins that he it's uses, in, in much the same way that Batman also utilizes child soldiers. Um, yeah, like I got no shame in saying that. 
But uh, it's a lot of that stuff there, I think, is really interesting and, and really fun, even if you can sort of see the calculation behind it. Yeah. Well, they about- also update the, the time setting in this. It's pre-World War One, which obviously comes into much more to play in the sequel. But like, yeah, but that's not, not that's set- not updating. It's you. You mean they've moved it later, not forward, not yeah. forward. Yeah, like it. It's more. It's further on than the original yeah. books were set, but not too far that it strains credulity. Yeah, that basically the you, what you mean is that the political forces and stuff that have begun to lead to World War One are in yeah. motion. But yeah, um, shit's moving in that way. But yeah, they they make reference to like um. A study in in Scarlet, uh, which is the first Holmes story and is the one that introduces Irene Adler. Um, they make reference to that in this movie, like it's it's being slotted Scandal in the continuity. Obviously, given the events of the sequel, Reichenbach Falls has not happened yet, but uh, it it is slotted somewhere in the middle of the canon there. But you can but, imagine, uh, like all of the Charles Augustus Milverton stuff, the John Clay stuff. That's all been said and done until we get Sherlock Holmes 3 uh, and wherever they choose to go with that which they keep promising to make I mean Dexter yeah. Fletcher the director of Rocket Man is attached to do it and it was it even had a date before mm. the pandemic but um I I can't fathom how it's taken them this long frankly because both of these mm. movies made over 500 million dollars and the second one made more than the first so yeah. like I don't see I mean obviously Robert Downey Jr. had a pretty heavy dance card for a long time there with the Avengers yeah. stuff. But and now he's home free. Yeah. If he had the time to make Doolittle, he had the time to make Sherlock Holmes <laughs> 3. Yeah, that's exactly true. So what about you, John? What's your history with the character? Very similar to Harley's. I haven't read as many of the stories as Harley has. Obviously, I've got history with this movie, its sequel, Game of Shadows. I've got history with the Sherlock TV show. We've watched a bit of Elementary. But I just love this character so much. I love what he can represent. And I, lo- I again, I love how malleable he is. You can put him in, him in so many different situations. And as long as you play your cards right, it can work very well. And also- I do remember in high school, in English class, we used a script that was based off of Red-Headed League, mm. and we had sort of people in class acting out the different characters, and I have an abiding and deep love of that story in particular mm. because I think it's brilliant. You'd be a member. Yep. Of- yep. <laughs> um, you Have you seen the story? You've read the story? A very long time ago. Like, mm. this is... I, I had... Um, I read not all of the Sherlock Holmes stories, but a decent amount of them. Probably when I was about 12. Yeah, I was in grade seven. And that was one of the things that we had um, as part of like, we were going to, this is the book that we were going to be studying for the term that we were going to be reading as a class. And it was Sherlock Holmes. So the, the first book of Holmes stories, I should say. And uh, we got about, you know, maybe maybe a, a story and a half in before my teacher realized that he was addicted to cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> and, and um it got it got dropped but i really loved what i was reading so much that i just continued on my own and i read a lot and i watched some of the 
some of the movies it was being that were were out at the time. Um, mm. I remember I I saw the Richard Roxburgh Hound of the Baskervilles, uh, and I was I was very taken with Sherlock Holmes, even though uh, I had to stop reading it for class. I think we ended up reading Wind in the Willows instead. Um, I. I really enjoyed it, and I kept going on on my own. But uh, I, Wind in I, the Willows is not exactly non-dicey itself. <laughs> I never ended up reading all of them, but I read enough of them to know that this was a character I really loved. And mm. like like you guys, I mean, I saw this movie when it came out. Um, I watched the BBC show, although not all. I, only the first, I think, three series, not the fourth, mm. because then the list started. Um, and I... You say that's the final series. You're right; it is for the moment. I don't think it is. I think this that is exactly the kind of thing that they will keep doing a series like every ten years until those actors are gone. I adore the Abominable Bride, which is like the TV movie they did. Yeah, but uh, I I watched the first season of Elementary and I didn't mind it, but I also wasn't enough to inspire me to continue. I'm just a big fan of of. Holmes, and of mysteries in general, and Holmes is sort of the granddaddy of all the mysteries. There's uh, no Poirot without Holmes. Exactly. Like, he said, Poirot is Holmes in a lot of different ways. He is an eccentric private detective who is brought in by the police to solve wild things. Like, all, you're, you're right, all of it. Monk, Jessica, Fletch, Jessica Fletcher, uh, House MD. Like, it is a long, long history that... Really, this is the creation of the modern detective story, these these, oh, movie, these I would stories. argue modern superhero. I wouldn't say he is in the in the original stories. I think they're definitely reframing him as a superhero in this movie. Mm. But um, I I don't think that superhero is right for a description of, Cole, of Conan Doyle's original stories. Mm. You might disagree with that, though. Well, I'm just arguing that there's a lot there that led to the creation of the first superheroes like the pulp heroes the pulp detectives the comic books started with war stories romance stories and detective stories and we get the detective noir stuff through that and obviously like Sherlock Holmes is the progenitor of a great deal of western media but it's also coming from a long held standard of brilliant characters so let's talk a little bit about this movie in general. I mean, we mentioned that Sherlock Holmes is basically Batman in this, or it's mm. it's basically, and, and you, we've seen it. We talked about um, Gotham by Gaslight. You know, that's that's a very literal that that literalizes the connection between yeah. Holmes and, and Batman in a pretty explicit way. And but, the doom that comes to Gotham, the doom that came to Gotham, which is coming out pretty soon, literalizes the study and study and Emerald side of things. Yeah, <laughs> but it's uh, it's a lot of really successful links between those yeah. two things. And this movie does it well, to the point that I think, having read some of the stories, like, I'll be the first to admit, this this movie is not exactly the most faithful of <laughs> adaptations. But at the same time, it isn't the complete violation of canon oh, that no. so many people make it out to be. Sherlock Holmes was never the guy with the from the original, like, Basil Rathbone movies. Like... Mm. Watson was definitely not the guy from those original Basil Rathbone movies. This sort of chubby, bumbling fellow who couldn't tie his own shoelaces if Watts, if Holmes wasn't around to help him. No, he's a war hero. He is a guy who's mm. perfectly capable of taking care of himself and is very intelligent in his own right. And Holmes, from the very beginning, 
Like I said, we had to stop reading that book because he was a cocaine addict. Like the dude's hmm. like straight up tweaker. He's always been very, he's always been very manic and extreme as a character, very unusual and quirky. And he is very proficient in boxing in the stories. Yeah. There are many stories. Doyle never seems very interested in describing action sequences, but he will say, you know, after a, after a scuffle, Holmes quickly apprehended, you know, quickly took down this guy. Holmes can hmm. beat your ass. Yeah, and he does frequently in those books. It's just that, <laughs> that Doyle doesn't describe it. He just skips over it very quickly. So um, I, I love how they literalize it here. Like, he can basically, due to just observation and knowledge of human behavior, he can dismantle someone in his mind and then carry it out. Hmm. Which then gets translated into Game of Shadows in the best possible yes, way. I was going to say, the way that they build on that <laughs> in the finale of Game of Shadows um, is, is a very strong. But that, that, uh, that gimmick is sort of what this movie is best remembered for, best known for, is sort of that slow motion, quick motion, slow motion again. Yeah, discombobulate, this mustn't register on an emotional level. Um, Have you seen that meme of the kid continually just being whacked by this carnival game? And it's just like, discombobulate. Whack. Discombobulate. Whack. Bam. It's brilliant. I'll send it to you. But I think that that's a really good example of the way that this movie has taken the core of the character and expanded that out into being a superhero, into being Batman, into being a modern action hero. But in a way that is rooted in the original fundamentals that the character was based in. Mm. Um, Absolutely. And Ritchie is, I think, a pretty inspired choice to direct, Guy Ritchie. Um, I like all of his movies. The more I see of his movies, the more I like them. I mean, The Gentleman was my favourite movie of 2020. Um, But... He is coming at this movie, at, at this point in his career, he is still sort of rebounding from that fairly disastrous Madonna romance movie that he did, which was the, really the only time he stepped out of his uh, sort of pulp British um, crime zone. But uh, he's coming off the back of Rock and Roller, um, Swept Away, which almost killed his career, uh, Snatch... And lock, stock, and two smoking barrels. So he's he's definitely you see from that he's got attitude, and mm. he does a very good job of taking Sherlock Holmes and sort of dirtying him up again. Like he's like a bit, a, mm. he's ragged, he's shaggy, and but he's closer to his tweaker origins. Like this isn't the clean Basil Rathbone type. You get a Jude Law for Jude Law for that type of Sherlock Holmes aesthetic. But this is the kind of like, no, this guy hangs out with homeless urchins. This is the guy who will disguise himself, dirty himself up to solve a case. This is like, oh man, whenever he's not at, whenever he's not at Baker Street, he's in his friggin' drug hovel <laughs> in an apartment above a fight club. And it is a drug hovel. Like they they skirt around that shit in this movie a decent bit, but he is absolutely getting high in there. But, I mean, that is the thing, is bringing him back to that original sort of dirtiness and grittiness that he has in in the same way, in a very similar fashion to the way Shakespeare has been. 
co-opted by sort of a like in becoming sort of a national symbol of a certain period of drama. If you can hear background noise here, I'm sorry. There's nothing I can do about it. Someone's mowing. But um, if you, in the same way that Shakespeare has sort of become, you know, this stiff collared, buttoned up thing when that is not what the stories are at all in in much the same way the sort of treatment and veneration of Holmes has lost some of the scrappy energy that he has they, they weren't for the wealthy hmm. they pr- they printed these stories in the papers so they can like, be read by the people like this is a quote from the books Watson says to one of the, after Holmes does something bewildering he says to one of the cops uh, I don't think you need to alarm yourself. I have usually found that there was method in his madness. And to which the cop responds, some folk might say there was madness in his method. Like, mm. this is mm. not new. He he is manic and weird and unpredictable and extreme in those books. And, uh, and I think it's actually nice to have it sort of threaded back in. I think that Sherlock, the BBC series, does a better job of... Um, sort of keeping some of the sort of original classiness <laughs> intact <laughs> yeah. in it. Like, it does a better job of bringing him back to basics while also maintaining, like, not not making him a superhero, not making him an action hero, basically. Yeah. But, uh... But they still, like, address the addiction. The, yeah. The, the frankly, arsehole sides of his personality. Hmm. And I'll talk about... Which does come in here as well. And I'll talk about this next week, but... He go. They take him to eleven in Game of Shadows. Like he is much more of a jerk in Game of Shadows, mm. uh, to a very entertaining degree. But um, yeah, I I think that for all of the criticism this movie gets for not being faithful to the source material, I think a lot of that is overstated. Mm. And I mm. think that they did something really. And this kind of runs counter to what we said about The Last of Us. But the strength of this movie is that it's a new story. Well, yeah, I mean, and it's a different thing to The Last of Us. Like, The Last of Us was, was like a breath of fresh air. It's a, it's a, a, a coming across a oasis in the desert because we just don't have stuff like that. Whereas there have been mountains of Sherlock Holmes adaptations yeah. that have um, been very, very faithful to the original material. It's, it's okay to have the prestige. It's okay to have the thing where he's Jack the Ripper because we have so many that where he's not, you know? Yeah. And, um, like, I... And- Think this so, mystery is incredibly compelling. I love it, and it is also not too far afield from the original story. Like taking on the idea of what appears to be magic—that's Hound of the Baskervilles. Yeah, you know, it's, mm. the Hound of the Baskervilles is a demon ghost dog that's killing people on the moors, and it, obviously but, like, it turns out not bo- to be. But it's still a huge fucking dog painted green. Exactly, like the um. Like, this is very in keeping with I some do of that love stuff. that reveal, though, in Hand of the Baskervilles. It's like, <laughs> hmm, could it be a ghost dog? No, it's just a really big fucking dog. <laughs> a really mean-spirited master. Like, the beauty of it is, like Hand of the Baskervilles, this movie, the answer is quite simple mm. when you get right down to it. It's just, the, it's the banality of the... It's like, that's the great thing about a lot of Sherlock Holmes stories. The actual criminal plan is kind of obvious when you get right down to it. What these criminals have chosen to do is couch in all this clever shit, but it's actually really straightforward. Redheaded lead, yeah. it's a scam to burrow into a goddamn bank. Yeah. Easy as you like. In this, he's playing Blackwood is playing on reputation. He's playing on yeah. fear. And he's like 
using technology to perform magic tricks. Like, and his greatest unexplained stuff is simply paying people off. Yeah. I, um... And I think Mark Strong is really fun here, too, because the vast majority of the time, he's just being this really ghoulish guy. I love the part where Holmes has gone to see him as <coughs> Blackwood's last request, and Blackwood just sort of goes up to the bars and says something cryptic and spooky. It's the way that it's, it's just lit and... um. Especially his eyes. The way that his eyes are lit in that yeah. moment kind of make them look black. Yeah. yeah. With, like, the, the pinpoints reflecting. Yeah. And there's always still, like, it's, the presence of his crow. It's to the point where you can... If it had ended up being a supernatural thing, if it ended up turning into, like, a fantasy horror film, you'd be like, okay, that makes sense. Because the energy and the style is there. Um... I, I agree with you, Mark Strong is very good. He's got this sort of gargoyle kind of thing going on, especially mm. with the, the, the cloak. Um, and the nasty tooth. And, like, the one nasty tooth. And the nasty tooth. tooth. <laughs> uh, but... As someone who has some pretty nasty teeth myself, that is a <laughs> nasty tooth. But um, I, I think that... book of British smiles. <laughs> I think, though, that he doesn't exactly have enough motivation or contextualization to his character he is well, he a also doesn't have a great deal to do yeah like that's the thing is i will say that for as much as i enjoy it and as as much as i like the plan that these bad guys have uh the mystery part of the mystery is not great the sort of evidence leading to evidence leading to evidence leading to the bad guy thing i don't think that's particularly well done i think they they don't blend it together properly they don't layer it in like something like mm. knives out does or something like that it's it's a little more like they it takes them to the dockyard where we get the set piece and then um you know after that we'll have this whole scene of stuff which isn't really exactly evidence but it's just like holmes will just tell us stuff like a specific type of dirt on a footprint and that'll lead us to the next place we'll get the next set mm. piece it's it's mm. you can see the pins holding the different points together rather than it flowing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I do think that just comes down to kind of the pace of the thing. Can you imagine uh, Ryan Johnson's version of one of these? Like, if they really yeah. gave him $150 million to make one of these? Mm. Or if that's like the final Benoit Blanc one is a big $150 million epic? <laughs> <laughs> His version... What would Benoit Blanc's version of Moriarty be? The sheer concept of boredom? Well, that's Sherlock Holmes, too. But, like, I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. But, um, the... It would, it would end up having to go against someone who's actually smart and not a complete dipshit. Yeah. <laughs> but the, uh, the movie is really in service of this sort of buddy cop thing going on between yeah. Robert Downey mm. Jr. and Jude Law, who were... Brilliantly together. Outstanding chemistry. They bicker like a married couple. They have such chemistry with each other. Like, that's the... That dynamic is the thing you have to nail in an adaptation. Mm. The chemistry between Holmes and Watson. And I'm so glad that it's two consummate professionals who are just, like, allowing themselves to go there. I like the scene after the dockyard, after the ship has been sent into the Thames and all of that damage has been done... Where Sherlock wakes up and Watson's like, I think I know what's wrong. I am deranged. Why <laughs> else would I continue to follow you into stupid 
thing after stupid thing. Uh, there's no other reason. You constantly disrespect me. You steal my clothes. You poison my dog. Our dog. You poison the dog. Like, I love how this is a Watson at the end of his tether. <laughs> yeah. Like, he is trying desperately to reset, like recover some semblance of his last days with Holmes before he goes off to live a life of peace with his wife. But that's but a great... Holmes is just, like, struggling to let go. But that's a reminder, too. Like, yeah, Holmes would be a pretty difficult guy to be around. That's something <laughs> that a lot of the adaptations lose, is that, you know, it's it's sort of people t- tend to fawn over him. Oh, you're so smart, Mr. Holmes. Oh, you're so brilliant. Um, and it's only really some of the recent stuff. It is this movie. It is Sherlock, the BBC show. It is actually elementary to some degree, where... It's like, actually, no, he's kind of be a bit of a nightmare if you actually had to work with him. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's like, Lestrade I mean, is there's... the most patient man alive hmm. in almost there's every reason adaptation. Why Les... He's like, Jesus Christ, this asshole constantly reason... belittling me. Yeah. Like, I love the versions of Lestrade who, they're clearly, he's clearly not an idiot. Hmm. But, like, Holmes treats him like some a stunted child. Because he can't, like, see all the, like, bullshit connections that Holmes can make just because Holmes doesn't spare room in his head for the solar system. Well, to be fair, um, yeah, that is that is a great, like, detail from the books that he's not aware of the solar system until someone tells him because he doesn't have room. He's, uh, all, all this more important Earthbound stuff, he's not, he's not bothering with any of that nonsense because like, it's never going to be of like, interest to him. He can pinpoint the flavor of a particular orange mud, but he has no idea what a fucking polar bear is. Because <laughs> yes, it's yes. never come up. Like, he's only interested in the stuff that will directly affect his ability to solve crimes. And um, that's what makes him so goddamn and difficult. directly in European countries. <laughs> yeah. Um, that would have been a great story, well, wouldn't it? He does know a good like... bit about America. Yeah. But that would have been a great story, wouldn't it, if he was like, if he ended up in China or something and had to solve a crime <laughs> there and he had no clue what was going on. And, like, that's one of the Didn't interesting things the, about like, Mr. Holmes. Uh, he, uh, he, only knows enough, like he only knows enough of the Chinese language to get him in and out of opium dens. That's about it. He basically knows the sentence, where is the opium? <laughs> um, I, I think that's one of the ways that Danny Jr. plays him so well. He is wildly brilliant, but his brain is like a wildfire. Yeah. It burns away the things that it doesn't need in the moment. He's like and a mile that, a minute kind of this, guy. I'm just, I'll be, that's, keep talking, I'll be back in a second, I've got to close the door, it's getting louder. And that's people too. Like, he has that confrontation with Mary at the restaurant where Mary goads him into guessing. Like, uh, the Another Neil Gaiman short story, he's, like, dipped his fingers and toes into Sherlock Holmes several times, The Case of Death and Honey, which is a lot closer to, like, your Mr. Holmes sort of story. Um, And that's an interesting dynamic, too. What happens when he becomes an old man? And Hmm. after the gap between Game of Shadows and whenever they do the next one, it'd be interesting to see how dynamics change. Well, especially given how Game of Shadows ends, the place that that ends... Mm. Um, because there is actually, watching Game of Shadows again, there's a lot of ambiguity in the way some things wrap up there, like, more than I remembered. And mm. it would, 
I think it's pretty clear the intention was to do another one pretty quickly, but they did. And so now there's a lot of stuff that they have to pick up. And I think that's actually room for some of that to be really affecting because of that. Mm. And because of the time that it's taken to make another one. Yeah. Like if they, if they follow along and have it be set in the early 1900s, if they make that time, mm. time gap, um, they could do if something he's like really been interesting. Fake, he's faked his death for like over 10 years and then he comes I back kn- after that. I know that uh, that I said I really liked what Guy Ritchie does here, and I do, but I do think he can overcommit to the visual style of points. I think sometimes it can be a little bit busy when he might have been better off pulling back just a little bit in the editing. Yeah. Um, I'd love I to... That... The... Yeah, go on. Oh, no, continue. Uh, I love how they visualise the combat. It's not just the discombobulate thing, but I love the difference between how Watson fights how Sherlock fights... Hmm. Watson is has to be a lot scrappier, and he's no slouch. But Sherlock has this precision with the way he moves that is really entertaining to watch, both in this and in Game of Shadows. He's a little scrappier in Game of Shadows, though. He gets hmm. hit a lot more that time. Um, I would also like to talk about Moriarty. Yeah, because like him and Irene Adler are two of those characters from the canon. That have had such a massive impact on adaptation. Yeah, they stick. Of Sherlock Holmes. Irene Adler showed up in Scandal in Bohemia and then was mentioned offhand as the woman in other stories. Moriarty is hinted towards in some and only really takes part in a couple of stories himself. And But they've become these archetypes of these characters that have such a stranglehold on Sherlock as a person. Mm, like, and I like what they're doing with Adler here, and I like what they do with Moriarty as well. Yeah. I do think the age gap between Downey and McAdams stands out more than it probably should. I think mm. that they, they probably should have cast someone closer to his age or cast mm. someone closer to her age, but um, they are. you're right. They have good chemistry. McAdams is really strong. I do think it is very interesting, as you said, that uh, Adler has such a staying power given her very limited appearances, and Moriarty as well. Moriarty, by the way, is another one of the ways in which this movie emulates Batman Begins. It's it's uh, Gordon giving Batman the Joker card at the end of the movie. Yeah. Um, I actually don't think we need Moriarty in this movie. I think it's I think there's got to have been some better way to get Adler in. Maybe have her working for Blackwood to start off with, hmm. but um, the Moriarty thing. Maybe have sort of her confu- working for Mycroft. Yeah, the Moriarty thing sort of confuses the point, um, and they don't need it, especially considering the fact he's going. This machinery is crucial to my plans, and then the second movie it's doesn't really use not. it at all. Um, it it, like it just literally Harris. doesn't turn up. Jared Harris is brilliant as Professor Moriarty. I think yes, was like that's one thing I wanted to ask. Um, because I did some reading. Apparently, he overdubbed his voice. Yeah. So that was in the version you watched. It, it oh, was yeah, Jared yes, Harris. Yeah. See, I've got the Blu-ray from 2010 before <laughs> it was announced, and it's still the original voice, and I can't quite place it. It almost sounds to me like Mark Strong is doing the voice. No, it was one of the uh, vocal coaches, one of the accent right. coaches. See, there, there's a bunch of stories floating around online. There's one that it's Richie. There's another that it's uh, Brad Pitt. Because he's a frequent Richie collaborator. Mm, I could see that, but it John it, it, it I, remains unknown. Like I could yeah. find no credit. Um, 
John showed me part of that, like part of him speaking from that original version, and it's not dissimilar from Jared Harris. So it's like it it comes off pretty natural, I think, even if you're watching that older version. But I love Moriarty as concept as the villainous Sherlock Holmes, the Dark Mirror, while Irene Adler is one of his allies, ostensibly, um, someone who has great affection for Holmes, Moriarty sees him as the fly in the ointment. Moriarty is the kind of guy who, again, only has a couple of appearances, so a lot of the adaptations of him have to ex- extrapolate. Uh, Sh- Sherlock, for example, you're not gonna get find any Sherlock Holmes fans who say that that's an accurate portrayal of the character, but he's damn entertaining to watch because he's the dark mirror. He mirrors everything awful about Holmes. And that works here as well. We only get a little bit of him here. That's kind of why I like Game of Shadows a tad bit more. Um, I, I do like the, the plan here that Blackwood has. The plan that he has to poison all of these people in Parliament and make it seem like he's done some kind of sorcery. And I like that when Holmes explains exactly what the plan was to back to Blackwood. Blackwood almost drops the charade, and, and he's just like, Holmes, let me up! And he just drops the spookiness completely. I think that's really fun. And I, I like it's a little the bit, ending um, it's a little bit on the bridge. Gunpowder plot, isn't it? Mm. Mm. Like, blowing up <laughs> the House of Lords and shit. Mm. And, I don't know, like, even just, if some of, like, the explanations for why it's not supernatural kind of, like, weirds me out. Like, the guy bursts into flames because he's been doused in petrol or something or a, a non-smelling accelerator, but he didn't notice, like, that literally the only spot that was raining in the city was the, the radius around the sprinklers on the, on the like- building. Are we just to assume Maybe that... Maybe he has really shit peripheral vision. Are we just to assume that Americans at Universe just, like, are so tunnel-visioned? Um, Maybe. But I don't know, like, all the Secret Society stuff is pretty nice. It's interesting and serviceable, at least. It's not it's the most compelling. fun when they bring him to their headquarters and they're acting like, you know, I suppose you're, you're wondering who we are, Mr. Holmes, and he just, like, <laughs> punctures their egos so thoroughly. Just lists off who they are, and exactly where they are as well, even though he was blindfolded. Mm. And like, you think that, that, I do like score? how he's like, I, I was lost, but then we passed by the baker's shop, and they have a very particular glaze that they use, mm. so I know exactly where we are. And like, and how well he knows else his city. In his, if everyone else in his family is dead, how long do you reckon you'll survive? I love how well, Good for thought. I love how well Sherlock knows his city. That yeah. he basically knows... Like, he could tell where he was because of a simple divot in the road. <laughs> mm. And that's that's wonderful. I love the score. Yeah. All the fiddles and things. Because he's a fiddler. Uh, mm. Not to, like, in the, the PG sense of the term. He is he is a fiddler in the books. <laughs> um, uh, he plays the fiddle. Yeah. I, I do really like especially the score that plays when the bong goes off and almost takes yeah. out Watson. That's mm. a very striking scene with very striking music. Um, just sort of dashing from the bomb in slow motion. See, that's the stuff that I think that's where Richie's style works. I think it's sort of like the flashes and split-second images of certain things. So I think, okay, you're kind of overdoing it a little bit. 
Um, actually, think they do. Yeah, I'm not sure. I can't. I'd have to look at my notes what what I thought of that in Game of Shadows. But yeah, he he really overdoes it in Game of Shadows to the point where it's almost parody. <laughs> like so so overdoes it. Like the bit where they're running through the forest with all the slow motion bullets and things whizzing by. And yeah, but it works for the uh, final confrontation though. But uh, I think we are reaching the end of our conversation here, unless you guys have something else to add. I just wanted to speak a little about the relationship between Holmes and Watson here, and the way that Holmes is... Holmes can't help himself but push people away, even though he's trying to hold them close. And I find that very interesting, the way that he speaks to Mary. The fact that Mary, at the end, sees through the disguise... Showing that she's switched on as well, and says, "Solve this, fix this." Well, and there's the I think that's, there's the element of yeah. I love the first scene where he's meeting Mary, and he goes through mm. all of these facts he's been able to gleam about her, and fucked up the last one, and mm. that is the essential flaw with how Holmes operates. He doesn't listen; he just observes, and he will make the assumption because of his line of work that speaks most poorly to the person he's observing Hmm. and i don't know that's been something inherent to the character the whole time he makes mistakes he gets most of the way there then stumbles at the end in pretty much every social situation he's in and that is what balances the character out between his brilliance and his assholeness he's trying he really Hmm. is but he is too arrogant to see outside of his frame of reference, but you can tell he still wants to keep people close. And that's the dichotomy for Sherlock Holmes that you need to nail. And they do it exceptionally well here. All right, then. Why don't we each go around and say who our MVP is for this movie, what our favorite scene or sequence is, and, of course, who we would recast with this podcast's patron saint, character actor John Lithgow. Knock, knock! Who's there? I will start us off and I will say that my MVP for this movie is Robert Downey Jr. I think he is incredibly entertaining as Holmes. He's not the most faithful version of Holmes we've had, but he is one of the most fun. Mm. Um, And he really does capture sort of the manic cocaine addict energy of Holmes. He does well in slotting that into Richie's vision of him as this Batman-esque, more modern hero. And he just, I mean, this is sort of the last bit before Robert Downey Jr. really has started to play Robert Downey Jr. a lot. Yeah. And I think you're sort of seeing that here to some degree, but there's still a performance there. There's still sort of been filtered through his view of Sherlock Holmes as a character. And he doesn't forget to do the accent. (laughs) Yeah, it's a strong... Performance, and I, I think that um, Robert Downey Jr. has sort of, you know, the stuff he's been doing since then that's not Avengers or Sherlock Holmes has been kind of disappointingly sane, and I'm hoping that I, think, uh, I do think part of that comes down to the fact that after Iron Man, Iron Man became a part of his personality, mm. and that is hard for him to move away from. I yeah. think it's because there was so much of Downey in the character. Mm. I'm hoping that that Oppenheimer movie with Chris Nolan later this year gives him the chance to sort of spread his wings again and really get back into more of a character acting mode. 
Yeah, um, I do hope so. I think I actually think it's kind of crucial that he he find the ability to do that again as he moves into his sixties and seventies. Yeah, so that's going to be increasingly important. Yeah, if he's still rocking around at eighty doing his Iron Man thing, it's not going to work. <laughs> no. uh, in terms of my favorite scene or sequence, I'm really a bit split. It's between Standish getting lit on fire, pulling a Gabriel Byrne in Hereditary, <laughs> or uh, the explosion at the docks. I think I've got I've got to go with Standish. I think just because it's got more substance to it. It's a really cool slow motion explosion, but uh, I've got to go with Standish meeting his end because it is really a, a very effective moment in the sense of what it's saying about Blackwood, what it's showing us about him as a villain, that he does have power, whether that's supernatural power or, as we later learn, you know, power of deception and science. It's He's got authority and he's a very dangerous person. And uh, the way that we, he is now sort of seizing control of this secret society, uh, the way that Standish goes out is quite striking and i like there's this one line that he says he ha- he yells when he's on fire he yells save me um and i don't know why but that just disturbs me so much more than help me uh or oh god oh god i'm on fire someone well, get me water it's not just that all the people in that room are ostensibly his friends except for blackwood yeah so that i've got to go with that sequence because it is like as i've said i i tend to go with the ones that I think of when I think about the movie. It's a movie I've seen before. And so I've got to go with that one. And you'd love to see a good fire stunt. Absolutely. Uh, even though I, I do believe a lot of that was digital from the look of it. Mm. Um, I, In terms of who I would recast with this podcast, patron saint character actor John Lithgow, this is another thing I'm split because he does seem like a good Blackwood, doesn't he? But mm. at the same time, mm. having seen Third Rock from the Sun, I think you could blend some of the edge of some of his more mature characters with the goofy manicness of his Sherlock, of his third rock from the sun character. I think he could do Sherlock Holmes as presented in this movie. Hmm. And I think he'd be a lot of fun with it as well. Uh, He's not so far afield from someone like Jeremy Brett or Basil Rathbone in terms of look and vibe, but he can bring some of the, again, the cocaine addict energy. that I think is crucial for this interpretation of the character. I think he... He would just have to get absolutely shredded for the bare-knuckle boxing bit. Well, or yeah, not. but he would have to train, definitely, but Robert Downey Jr. is not shredded in this. Like, that's the thing. Robert, like, Sherlock Holmes in this movie doesn't need to be Dwayne Johnson because he knows the the weak points, you know? Mm. All, mm. He, all he really needs is to be in decent shape so that he can throw his weight behind some things and do some dodging. He doesn't have to be... A wrestler or a or a real mm. you know bulky Brad Pitt looking um, built up guy. Mm. So yeah, I think I think I'm going to go with Lithgow because I think it would be very very fun casting, and I definitely like. I've got to say, I really like this sort of fantasy resume of John Lithgow's that we've been building up over the course of doing this segment. Like if we could, if all of the movies that we've voted to be pro, if we could have a version of those with the the consensus Lithgow role with Lithgow in it. I think that would be very a very strong, fun resume for John Lithgow to have. But, uh, yeah, I've got to go with Sherlock Holmes, I think. For me, I would have to say my MVP... I kind of put it between uh, Robert Downey Jr. and Drew Law. Nailing the chemistry 
between Holmes and Watson is integral, and they've got it. They have it here. They are open and willing performers who kind of have this natural vibe to them. You can tell they're not forcing it, and that's wonderful to see. They're also, they also play it in a very fun way. Like, Jude Law is at the end of his rope, and Holmes is like this desperate puppy dog chasing after him, trying to keep their young bachelor days alive. Um, and that dynamic honestly works because of who the two performers are. Jude Law plays very precise characters, and Robert Downey Jr. plays the more kind of flighty, kind of flaky characters. And it's it works exceptionally well here. My favorite scene or sequence, I kind of have to give it to when Holmes is explaining everything to Blackwood at the end, because I love those scenes in movies where all of the little things that have been peppered throughout the film come into stark relief. It's not done as neatly as I would have hoped in this, but it is all there. It's just not obvious to us. And I don't know, that whole final confrontation with Blackwood ending with his true, proper hanging is is quite effective. If I were Watson, I would check people for broken necks if I go to any more hangings in the future. Can't rely just on Pulse. Um, yeah, plus I think Mark Strong does a really good job in that scene. Even though he's kind of given a thankless job in the movie, not giving that much to honestly do. I would- I was initially thinking Blackwood for John Lithgow. Because John Lithgow could definitely do that. He can go to those sinister places, and you'd only have to change a couple of lines uh, to make uh, Blackwood uh, the brother of the leader of the four- for order thing. Just casting, just cast forty-year-old Lithgow or something. Yeah, something like that. Like mm. you could, you could do it. But I do agree with you, Lawson. He would be an exceptional Sherlock Holmes because he can play both the serious, fiercely intelligent kind of character, but also be kind of a socially bumbling idiot. And he can play both to the peak. And it'd be so fun to watch him do something like that. I would love to see him as a version of Sherlock Holmes just in general. Like, he spent a long, long time studying in England so he can do the accent. Christ, he played Churchill. Like, you know he can do the voice. So I think I would love to see him as Sherlock Holmes, not only in this, but in basically any other form. So for me, I've got to give it to yeah Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law. The chemistry they have is very easy. You can tell that they didn't really have to work at it. There's just sort of a natural rhythm to them. And they've done such a good job at building these two characters and giving us that feeling that they have been working together for a very long time. And I praise them for that. They also do such a fantastic job separately. They really capture the essences of this character. Sherlock is very scrappy, he's a bit ragged, but brilliant. And Watson is the ever-faithful, even though probably for his mental health he shouldn't be as faithful, uh, you know, man in the chair almost. He's a good foil for that manic energy. For my favorite scene or sequence, a bit difficult. I think I have to give it to that entire sort of final confrontation the part where the moment from the moment blackwood steps out into the house of lords and goes on his huge speech all through to 
the thing not working and him just sort of having to turn in a huff and walk out of the room as people are like, oh, hey, uh, that Lord Coward guy, he's full of shit. Get him. Arrest him. All the way to that confrontation on the bridge and his proper hanging. I think that was very well handled and the only right way for that Blackwood character to go out. And for who I would get John Lithgow as? Blackwood. Easily. I felt like he could do a really good job there, be really scary. Because Holly and I have watched a few clips recently of him in other properties, him in Dexter as the Trinity Killer, calling people the C-word, and him in a you movie cool called cat. Ricochet with... Sorry? You mean cool cat? No. What C-word well, do you mean? I'm not going to say it. <laughs> the... But I also showed him a clip from a movie called Ricochet, where he's like op- opposite Denzel, Wa- Denzel Washington as this really deranged character. Yeah, so I love seeing him play a character who has not just Edge, but the entire knife shop. Hmm. And that's, I feel, what Blackwood is. That's what Mark Strong is doing here. I agree. He would be great as Sherlock, but I feel like you would be losing something if you don't have Downey Jr. there. Hmm. It would have to be a different kind of movie. Fair. So now... He would be a fantastic comedy, Sherlock Holmes, Mm. though. I feel like if you were doing a parody of Sherlock Holmes and all of that, he would be a good pick. So now we're going to put it to a vote, whether or not we are a pro-Sherlock Holmes podcast or not. Lawson, cast your vote first. I'm going to say yes. I think this is an extremely fun movie. Uh, It... It does a really good job of updating Sherlock Holmes for the the modern day as a sort of action blockbuster hero. The performances are great. The chemistry between Tudor and uh, Robert Downey Jr. are really good. Richie, although he does over in, overindulge at certain points, makes this a really you know fantastic fast paced adventure story. I'm gonna go yes. I think it's a really fun time. So I am going to have to concur with Lawson. I am. Yes, on Sherlock Holmes. I am a huge fan of the character, and while this isn't the most perfect adaptation, this is what adaptations are for. To change the format, to update things, to give it a new energy, a new vibe, a new life. And to hold to canon so strictly is to basically keep the character stagnant. And for all the people who like complain about this version of Sherlock Holmes, is Sherlock Holmes not strong enough a character to survive this kind of thing? It- He's strong enough to survive whatever Will Ferrell did to him. Like, and... The Romeo and Juliet sequel, which makes zero sense Actually, I'd argue that's not a terrible Sherlock Holmes. Not a great movie. Not a bad Sherlock. Uh, but... Who voices him in that? James McAvoy. Yeah. No, McAvoy is in it. He's Romeo. Oh, no, he's Romeo. I'm sorry. So Sherlock Gnomes... Sherlock fucking (laughs) Sherlock (laughs) Gnomes... Every time... Uh, Sherlock... Oh, Sherlock Gnomes is Johnny Depp. Like, it's not a bad version, but back to this. I think it has a great blockbuster energy that it needed to have. It's beyond being a really good adaptation, it's just a hell of a lot of fun. And Robert Downey Jr. is always electric to watch. And yeah, I'm pro-Sherlock Holmes. Have to be. Yeah, I'm pro-Sherlock Holmes too. This is an incredibly fun film full of amazing performances, a brilliant score by Hans Zimmer and the rest of his, what he calls now the Disruptive Collective. Uh, It's so witty, it's frenetic, 
The style is on point, I think, even though, as Lawson said, there's a bit of indulgences here or there. Overall, it's a really great time at the movies with a fun mystery at the center. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. We are a pro Sherlock Holmes podcast. So if you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Exit Do the Candy Celtic by joining myself on the bright side. You can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode-specific feedback and movie recommendations. What do you think about Sherlock Holmes? What is your favorite version of Sherlock Holmes? What is your favorite Sherlock Holmes story? Uh, have you also read or listened to Study in Emerald, and what do you think about that twist? Uh, you or can also... uh, the, the last Sherlock Holmes story. Like, yeah. Are you outraged? <laughs> uh, you can also like, rate, comment, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Uh, but just keep in mind that when you're commenting, you could either be depending on which service you use, commenting on the show on the whole, or on a specific episode. Just keep that in mind. You can also share with your friends. That helps get this out there. Uh, But yes, please do like, comment, and subscribe. We really do appreciate it. The machines are big fans of libraries. You would imagine these would be electronic libraries, but no. They're big fans of physical literature. Actually holding the book in one's hand, going to a place, and actually searching. Uh, very organized minds, you would understand, big fans of the Dewey Decimal System. I've been allowed time off to study at the local library. The machines have been rather helpful finding time travel reference material, but again, a lot of it is fiction, not the theoretical physics I am after. I love libraries, the tactile nature of being in a room full of books. The machines themselves have implemented a rather robust education system. After all, as beings of logic, they want us to be properly educated and to appreciate the art of the past. So, Lawson, what do we have next week? Well, next week we will be doing a, a different kind of movie, a another movie from the very end of 2009 that I know all three of us are fans of. It is the Wes Anderson stop-motion animated film Fantastic Mr. Fox. Uh, based on the Roald Dahl book, same name. If you would like to follow along at home, you can find it available for streaming in Australia on Disney+, Plus. but you can also find it available for purchase only on the Apple, Amazon, YouTube, and Telstra stores. Again, I think if the more I look at some of the Disney properties, they are really restricting the rentals online mm. in the attempt to get you onto Disney+. Plus. Um, but yeah, that's next week. Yeah. So join us next week for when we discuss one of John's absolute favourite films, The Fantastic Mr. Fox. Till then, I have been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and will continue, to be John Lewis. <laughs>